Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters. Ten volumes available at Amazon in paperback and ebook formats. And if you're an audio buff, and I know many of you are, nine of the ten are available at Audible, Amazon, and iTunes as well. So please go out and partake of some of them. And before I introduce you to my brother, uh, a little heads up, the podcasts are now available on YouTube. And uh, if you just type in Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, you're going to see one of my podcasts come up. And if you click on that, once you open up one podcast, if you click just below it, it's going to give you the entire list of shows. So you could uh, listen on YouTube as well if that's your pleasure when you're out and about. And by the way, folks, if you purchase a book, leave a good five-star review for it, would you? You'd be doing me a big favor, and it would be much appreciated on my end. And now... Without any further ado, my brother and co-host, K.J. Sheehan. Kev, how are you? I'm doing great, Bill. How about you? Pretty good. I just had the boys finish cleaning up my backyard. And uh, what a job these guys had. I had these vines and trailing plant roots. And, there was, uh, man, there was stuff all over the place in this one bed. Nice. And uh, it took him a couple of days of solid, hard labor to get this thing cleaned up. No uh, no Bigfoot tracks or anything like that in that wilderness? No, uh, no Bigfoot tracks, but I had some of these vines that were like anacondas wrapping around <laughs> stuff. Oh, my God. I mean, really, it was, it was a brutal uh, job of digging in hatchets and... Uh, but uh, I paid them well, so they they got uh, good day's wages for the, their labor. But these boys worked, boy. Yeah, that's hard work. That's hard work. Well, down here on the south coast of North Carolina, we are having a wild storm today, which will be undoubtedly be featured in our podcast at some point today. So, folks, <laughs> if you hear some crazy background noise, that is the 40-mile-an-hour winds whipping against my windows and house and sheets of rain coming down. <laughs> yeah. The good news no. is we won't have any Marine Corps helicopters buzzing us unless they're coming to rescue me. 
Yeah, it's nothing quite like sheets of rain blowing horizontally. <laughs> I'm telling you, I woke up about ten times last night with the house shuddering in uh, in these gusts. Wow. So, yeah. No, crazy. I'm I'm, fam- I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Wild, <laughs> wild stuff. By the way, folks and Bill, the YouTube uh, recordings. Not all of the episodes are up there yet, right? I think. I took a I, peek the other day. There were a handful, but not all of them. Yeah, if you click on it, here's what happened. They were loading them over a period of time, uh, something to do with YouTube. So what you were seeing was random uh, small groupings of uh, the recordings coming up out of order. And it depended uh, it depended on who was loading what at the time. So the first the first uh, recording, let's just say it was episode uh, 129. If that was the most recent that had been loaded, that would come up as the number one. So now if you click on it, you're gonna see uh, 193 uh, at the top and then when you open that up, and click on that, uh, you'll see just below it, a whole listing will develop running down. There are a couple of them that got duplicated for some reason. Uh, Like I saw episode 188 was listed twice, and there was maybe three or four that got listed in dupes. But uh, yeah, so I was wondering about that myself at the time. But it was whichever one was... He had a couple of people that were working on it, putting episodes up. And so let's just say uh, I had listed, I don't know, 187, 186, 185, 184. And then you came on after me and listed, uh, you know, 139, 138, 137. Yours would come ahead of mine in the queue. Yeah, they just have to sort, yeah. Yeah, it, it was kind of a weird thing. I mean, what do yeah. I know? Just but I, I only looked about a week ago, and there were only about 25% of them up there. So if they're all up there now, that's great. But yeah, there's a whole if you don't see of- them all, folks, they're coming. <laughs> and li- listen, when you do this stuff for us, folks, always leave a good review. You know, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, leave a good review and uh, help us in our quest to do what it is we do, which is to try to bring you an entertaining uh, podcast each time we come to the microphone. So there you have it, Kev. What do we have in our cryptids in the news and other oddities segment today? Well, today we're going to the world of the freaky deaky. <laughs> <laughs> And we're going to talk about something that's abbreviated as S-H-C. S-H-C. Do you know what that is? Uh, Let me say, uh, you said freaky deaky, right? Oh, yeah. Does it have to do with humans? It does. S-H-C is spontaneous human combustion. Ding, 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 ding. Unfortunately, you forgot to phrase it in the form of a question. Ah, what is spontaneous human combustion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, spontaneous human combustion. This stuff is freaky deaky. 
Um, the case, so this is where a person um, is rumored or allegedly bursts into flames, sometimes um, leading to their death, you know, in a pile of ashes, literally, uh, with yeah. nothing burned around them in the room, and sometimes uh, having, you know, their... They're sitting on the couch and not smoking or anything like that, and all of a sudden their clothing goes on fire. Yeah, that is the craziest. No flame around them or anything. Or even uh, there's one account I'll tell you about where an infant baby goes on fire. Like not its clothing, it just goes on fire. Fortunately, wow. fortunately it lives, you know. But uh-huh, uh-huh. Pretty crazy, so... These cases, uh, there's a large number of them, and they go back to the 1600s. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know. Really, uh, straight. I've I've heard uh, of this in the past, and uh, you know, it's the most bizarre thing. I mean, there are photographs and whatnot of people lying in bed. And, like, there's a hole through the mattress and through the floor below the bed and a pile of ashes in the basement, and the house didn't go on fire. Yeah. And generally, you know, through the hundreds of years we're talking about, the public uh, largely accepted that this was a reality, and I'll tell you why. Um, But there's little, if any, scientific proof for this actually happening. Or, you know, being something that could happen. Mm-hmm. So it's a controversial topic. But going all the way back to the 1600s, the victims were often alcoholics and overweight. Um, and there was a general perception with the public, especially going back hundreds of years, that it was a kind of retribution for their crazy lifestyle. Wow, that's weird. Yeah, and then it was also this theory, again, not proven theory scientifically, that their bodies were saturated with a flammable substance, which, of course, was alcohol, and therefore they became flammable. But what would have been the source of ignition? Yeah, no no idea. Yeah, what a bizarre thing. Yeah. So it's said that most of these people were alcoholics? That, that you know this this isn't a uh, survey by uh, Harvard University or anything like that. <laughs> you know, <just> generally, <laughs> I can't show you a graph that shows you know eighty two percent of them were alcoholics. Uh, well, maybe uh, one or two of them drank too much Bosco on this quick. <laughs> <laughs> But what's also interesting is uh, spontaneous human combustion has been written about by some famous authors and featured in their stories. So Herman Melville and probably most famously Charles Dickens. And Charles Dickens wrote a story called Bleak House. And there was a sleazy, alcoholic, junk merchant. His name, by the way, was Mr. Crook. With a K. (laughs) And he, in the story, he ends up as a heap of ashes on the floor and a dark, greasy coating on the walls and ceiling. Wow. I mean, I wish he could have been a little more descriptive. I don't know if a sleazy alcoholic. (laughs) 
Yeah, what's up, man? <laughs> oh, so there was a dog. It almost sounds like creosote. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Well, you know, could be smoke damage, whatever. You know. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that is creosote's a form of that, right? <clears throat> yeah, I mean uh, that film a coating. So go ahead. Let me uh, let me enter in with uh, what's going on here. So yeah, so uh, there's a couple of other cases I'll go through. And now, folks, you know I'm interested in what you think of these two. So write in and tell us. And certainly, if you know anything about them. So these this this comes from the internet. So you know I think it's true. It looks viable, but I don't know. But there's pictures too. So. The, the first one I'm going to talk about, and there's many of these cases, but the first one is called, uh, uh, the ba- it's about a baby in India, and his name was Rahul, and he made headlines for catching fire while he was an infant. And they have pictures of this kid, you know, sitting in a diaper, and, uh, you know, he has burns on him in several places, you know, but, but he, uh-huh. you know, the good news is, it didn't kill him, um, um, but his parents uh, said that he uh, started. You know, first became on fire when he was barely a week old, and in the span of a couple of months, he managed to uh, go on fire a total of four times. Wow! And they brought him into uh, the medical college and hospital in Chennai, India. Uh, several times, and uh, but this is about uh, on August eighth, twenty thirteen. So not that long ago, and they they write that some of the doctors accepted the parents' claim that the burns were caused by spontaneous human combustion. Uh, most were skeptical to start, but after tests indicated that Rahul, the baby, was completely normal. And psychological tests on the parents revealed that they were normal, or at least as normal as you and I, Bill. Um, They never did any further investigations, and uh, it never happened again to the baby. But it happened four times. Wow. You know, and and something like that is high risk. I mean, parents are going to do what they have to do, but you bring a child in that's showing burns, and they're thinking, you know, child protective services, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure there are some sick people out there that have bad things that bring the kids in for care, and then they realize, wow, these people were burning this kid with cigarettes or something, you know? Yeah, no, but I mean, these are like big burns, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not like little marks, by the way. No, I got you. I got you. I'm just saying in this world of uh, child abuse and stuff, that would be... uh, uh, a marker for investigation, you know, no doubt about it. Now we're wow. going to jump around on the timeline here. So uh, um, we're going to go back now to 1932, January 1932, on a cold day in the winter time in a town called Bladenboro, North Carolina. Okay, and there was a gentleman named Charles Williamson. He was listening to the radio downstairs in his house. And um, and he was sitting there, and his wife's cotton dress went up in flames. So her mm-hmm. her screams of terror brought Charles and their daughter to her rescue, and together they were able to 
tear off the dress and extinguish the dress um, before uh, too, you know, before it was too late and the fire spread. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was just no, no sign of anything, no flame in the room with her or any way for it to go on fire. Obviously, she wasn't smoking or anything like that. And it turns out that uh-huh. in this story, they say that that was just the beginning. They had four days of bizarre combustions. They said that first uh, she was in the bed and the bed took fire. Then the curtains went on fire and then a pair of Charles pants over a four-day period. Wow. And they said that the witnesses described it as blue jet-like flames and that they left neither smell nor smoke. And then finally, on the fourth day, they left the house. They, they, you know, they said, forget it. We're getting out of here. And authorities came to investigate, but nothing abnormal could be found. And they ended up moving in a couple of months later, uh, you know, moving back in a couple of months later, and uh, nothing, nothing was wrong. Nothing happened again. Blue to very strange kind of blue ethereal flames you know, uh, just uh, dancing around, you know. Yep. I I don't know, man. It's so tough to wrap your mind around this stuff, you know, like just burning out of nowhere, you know. Uh, I mean, heck, even if you fell asleep and you were an alcoholic smoking a cigar in your bed, I mean, you know, we know how that would end up if you didn't survive. I mean, the mattress would go up, you would go up, the house would go up, you know. It's it's not an isolated thing by any means. Fire, fire knows no mercy, yep. you know. What a bizarre thing. Very, very strange. So a couple more couple more here for you. Again, jumping around in time, so I apologize. But one of the most famous cases of supposed spontaneous human combustion occurred in 1663, where a man in Paris by the name of Nicholas Flamel um, supposedly burst into flames and was reduced to ashes in his own home. So this was publicized and, you know, again, going all the way back to 1663, and there was no other damage in the house other than, you know, him him completely uh, burning up. Yeah. Now, was that the fellow uh, where the hole went through the floor and uh, his pile, there was a pile of ashes there and like his foot was left in a boot or something? I didn't see that, but it could be, could be. I didn't see that in the story, yeah. but it could have been a different, you know, a different interpretation of the story from back then. Yeah. Now, I saw some photographs uh, quite some time ago. Well, this is 1663, so you probably didn't see photographs yeah. of this one. <laughs> That's right. But I saw some photographs of a guy that was had been sitting in a chair, I believe, and what was left of him... There were ashes, like, laying on the chair and around the chair. Uh, the chair was not burnt. You know, it wasn't singed or, or charred. And I think one or two of his feet were the only thing left in his shoes or his boots sitting at the base of the chair, just like they would have been if you were sitting there. Wow. 
So that might this be this guy one. Just... Um, this is the last one I'm going to cover. But now we're going to recent days in 2010, 2010. Okay. And um, this was a death of a gentleman named Michael Faraday. And he was in Ireland, 76 years old. And they found his badly burned body uh, near, near a fireplace, which is pretty typical in Ireland in the wintertime. But there was virtually no fire damage in the room. Huh. So, pretty strange. I didn't see any pictures, yeah. but that could be the one, you know. Now, the theory, one of the recent theories comes from a, a British, and this is pretty interesting, from a British biologist named Brian J. Ford. And um, he described... Uh, some experiments with combustion in a magazine called The New Scientist. And according to Ford, there can be a buildup of acetone in the body, which can result from alcoholism, diabetes, or a specific kind of diet. And as this acetone builds up in your body, that can be, you know, or that can lead to spontaneous human combustion. Now, he didn't prove that, but... That's a theory that he has. And, of course, Bill, it gets back to your question, you know, a few minutes back of, well, what's the ignition source? But it could be somebody sitting next to the yeah. fireplace, you know, and um, their uh, acetone-laden body, boom, next thing you know, they're on fire. Yeah, the, the crazy thing is, though, Kev, that the, the body can be burned literally to ashes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as though, uh, you know, you had chosen that way as a burial cremation. Yeah. And But yet, as that is happening and this body is reduced to nothing but basically powder, uh, nothing in the surrounding area goes up in flames. Well, yeah, and that's where you really get into the freaky-deaky occurrences because, as you know, I don't know the exact temperature, but to really reduce a body to a pile of ashes, you need yeah. a super hot fire. That's a technical term, by the way, Bill, super hot fire. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> much hotter than the fire in your fireplace, you know. Hey, listen, Kev, uh, Philip, I know you're listening to this podcast. It's my buddy, Philip. Uh, Philip was in the uh, business of dealing with the dead. Not, and Philip, I know you. The, you don't mean like in the mob or something like that. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. No, he was taking care of people after their demise. Okay. And Philip, uh, since I know you're listening. Uh, bring it up in one of our next conversations. I want to know in cremation how hot the furnace is to uh, reduce the body to uh, ashes. Yeah. And uh, maybe we'll just get back to this uh, sure. later on in a podcast, Kev. I'll just bring up what Philip tells yeah, me. Yeah, I read it when I was researching this, but I can't recall the number and I don't want to misquote it. But, you know, it makes sense. Like if I was sitting next to a campfire... And my clothing went on fire, and I got, you know, burns all over me enough to kill me, I wouldn't be reduced to ashes, right? I'd be a burned no. corpse there. That's know. right. And when the fire went out that burned you, yeah. uh, there would still be body left. Exactly. 
Exactly. You know, kind like of, when a, they, when kind of a grim when discussion on this stormy day in North Carolina. No, but, no, but I mean, we're just digging into the facts of the matter. I mean, to, if there was a the discussion, I agree. Yeah, if there's a house fire, and uh, after the house is extinguished, they go in and they find somebody that unfortunately met their demise in the fire. Uh, the there will be a body. Yep. Uh, I mean, it may be burnt up like a hot dog on a grill, but, you know, there's going to be a body. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to be just some little pile of ashes in a little isolated area, you know. Yep. But, uh, boy, that is creepy stuff. Cool. S- so I promised you freaky deaky, and there you go. So yeah. what kind of account do you have for us this week, Bill? <laughs> well, you know... One of my favorite accounts, of course, is what I called the bone pile uh, with the orthopedic surgeon uh, up in the Kootenay region. And this is the second bone pile. I think we discussed this a couple of years ago, but I like going back over things uh, to kind of just prove a point that these bone piles of similar ilk are found periodically here and there, uh, I guess globally, but in particular around North America. And this one had a little different twist to it. The guy made somewhat of an experiment out of it. So let's get into it. Uh, It came to me by way of Terry Wade, a resident of the state of Washington. Now, just listen as we hear what Terry had to say. As I thought about having this discussion with you today, I felt it would be best to lay a little groundwork as to who I am and what I do. It may help to add credence to what I'm about to say to both you and your readers, or in this case, your listeners. First of all, I'm a third-generation grocer, a food wholesaler. This business, which I now run and own, was started as a grocery store in New York in 1905. Today, having taken over the business many years ago from my father, we are strictly a wholesale vegetable distributor to the restaurant and food service industry, predominantly in New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey. I have a great managerial and employee base that affords me a surplus of free time with me being able to accomplish most of what I have to do via phone and internet. Since I don't really need to be there except for the occasional fly-in, I have lived in numerous locations throughout the country over the past 20 years or so. I am currently in Washington. In preparation to talk with you, I was trying to settle on a number in my mind as to how many days I've spent in the woods hunting. To the best of my knowledge, I came up with somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 days on the hunt. This would be inclusive of both small and large game, including waterfowl, and eight safaris. So this guy, this guy has the wherewithal and the pockets to support uh, some uh, heavy-duty hunting uh, affairs. I'm reasonably uh, proficient in the disciplines of rifle, shotgun, and bow, and consider myself at this point in the game a decent tracker as well. 
I have seen a Bigfoot, but that's not why I really called you. I called about some evidence that I had found and a little experiment that I did in the hopes of furthering the cause of Bigfoot being real. It's not that I need anyone to convince me, you understand. I like this guy. In the fall of 2006, while stalking some deer in the fringes of the Pasaten wilderness, I had a large Bigfoot pass above my position on a hillside while I was on the hunt below. As I said, I'm not here to speak of this sighting because I frankly don't have much to say about it. I saw it, it was real, and that's it. What I do want to talk about is the subsequent bone pile that I came across and my experimentation regarding it. In 2008, I was stalking in the area of the Henry M. Jackson Wilderness, west of Ceylon, when I came into an area that was devoid of, shall I say, all warm-blooded animals. It must have been for well over a mile before I realized that there was absolutely no creatures, be they great or small, to be found in the area. A fact that was extremely unusual in and of itself. A short time later, I came upon what I will describe as a small clearing, which was scattered with the bones of just about everything that lives in these parts. I'm talking from skulls to legs and everything in between. Now, it's not that I stood there counting them or anything like that, but there were so many bones from so many different animals that it would be impossible to determine what belonged to what. Just so you understand, if you were to shoot a deer in the woods and leave it be, in six months' time, there would be virtually no trace of the animal's body left. In fact, it's my opinion that the skull is the last to go because that is virtually the only thing I ever find when hunting. Perhaps there is less marrow in the skull, but other than that, I really don't know why this is. Regardless, the fact that all of these bones were here and that there was no wildlife around really got my attention. I decided to do some experiments in the area over the next year or so. It was some three months later that I came into the area again and took down a deer about two miles away from this bone pile. Now, what I did was not right as it pertains to hunting. But this was an experiment, and just for this one time, I broke the rules. I shot the deer and left it in the woods so that I could come back to it over time and log what happened to its carcass. I had seen a show about a place called The Body Farm many years ago. This was an outdoor forensics laboratory where human donor bodies were allowed to remain in various states outside in order to determine the rates of decomposition under a variety of circumstances. 
This study would then better enable law enforcement to determine the time of death for bodies found buried, laying in the woods, or even in the trunks of cars, for that matter. As far as the deer was concerned, and my inability to come in here every day, I had determined that somewhere between four and six months was needed for this deer to vanish without so much as a trace. There was absolutely nothing left, and this had happened less than two miles away from the bone pile, which was still there and untouched. I must also mention that any hunter worth their salt will tell you that no predatory animal, be they bear, lion, wolf, fox, coyote, or anything else, will take their kill back to the same location over and over again. Whatever they don't eat will be eaten by something else fairly quickly. Having done my little experiment only two miles from the side of the bone pile, I went back and set up three game cameras in low and high positions near the pile and left them there for a month. When I came back in and retrieved the cameras, not so much as one picture had been taken. I reset the area and came back a month later, finding two of the cameras missing and one smashed on the ground. It looked like it was hit from the front side with what I will describe as a punch. I say this because there was no damage such as a rock or a log would have done to the plastic that was visible to my eyes. I took the camera home and disassembled it on my workbench in the hopes of salvaging the card. Thankfully, the card was unaffected by the assault. When I reviewed the card, there were two pictures. In the first image, I saw what appeared to be the dark fingers of a hand that must have come from the side into view, but it was very fuzzy. The second image was completely dark, as though the lens was facing or being held against something dark in color, and that was it. After having performed my experiments, my own personal conviction is this. The bone pile is a place where a Bigfoot is returning to over and over again to eat. For what reason? I don't know. Secondly, the animals in the area surrounding this place will have nothing to do with what this creature had touched, steering clear of the entire area for quite some distance. Again, the reason for this being a mystery at this time. It's also rather remarkable that as I came into the area the first time, It was at about a mile away that all life was seemingly gone in the woods. And yet, at two miles distance, my deer had been completely consumed. This made it clear to me that the Bigfoot's saliva, perhaps, on these bones, or something about it, had created a large barrier of some sort around its kill. At least one thing is now clear in my own mind. Nothing in the forest wants anything to do with Bigfoot. 
Within any other species, animals will contend for another's kill. If nothing else, they will return to get their fill of what another may have left behind. What do you make of that, Kev? That's wild, Bill. A little CSI experiment with Bigfoot. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he also, Terry said that he had seen a Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah. So but he, knew he what didn't was have much. There. Right, he didn't have much to comment on it, other than he had sword and he knew it was real walking above him while he was perched doing a hunt. And that's kind of unique to an account like this, Bill. Like you said, there's a lot of accounts of the bone pile, and we saw it on uh, the television show uh, that I always forget the name of about Bigfoot. Right. The right. 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 Ultra ultra dramatic series that's running now. Mm-hmm. Um, where usually in these accounts, you don't have someone that has seen a Bigfoot there and then sees the bone pile, you know. Yeah, and had the wherewithal or the time and money to kind of loiter and do what he did. Yeah. Uh, taking down that other deer at a two-mile range and coming back later on to find it, it had, in fact, been consumed two miles away from where this bone pile was. Yeah, very, very cool. Very uh, strange set of circumstances. Uh, And then again, the game cameras, the first time around, nothing. The second time around, uh, he gets these couple of blackened images. One he thinks might be fingers. Uh, In that case, it could have been a bear, right? Uh, But bears bears don't have fingers, but you could have seen something, you know. Claws, you know, it sounded like in the description that it was super blurry, right? Right. And then the other one looked like he said it was just blacked out, like something was holding it or all all the camera could see was dark, you know. So who knows? But definitely uh, very strange. And uh, kudos to him for going to this uh, these kind of levels to try to prove out his own mind. Something that may or may not be going on over there, you know. As you like to say, Bill, high strangeness for sure. Yeah, that is definitely high strangeness, you know. But <laughs> hey, you know, if you got a pocket full of money and you can kind of do what you want, uh, I guess he was entertaining himself and trying to prove out something in his own mind. And then uh, I was on the receiving end of his experiment, you know. Yep, one hundred percent. So. Interesting though, had interesting though that that he had seen a Bigfoot and chose not to really talk about that. Uh, kind of just blasé in a blasé way, saying you know there wasn't much to say about it other than I saw it, it was real, and that's that. You know, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how many people have seen one, knows know it was real, and just that's that, like Terry did. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely Pretty cool. Uh, so what do we have in our listener mail today? Bro? Yeah, we got some good emails, Bill. Uh, the first one comes from David. And I don't know if you saw this one or if you got to look at the YouTube channel that he talked about. But the subject is unbelievable information and story on YouTube channel. And uh, David writes, greetings, WJ and KJ. I love the show and WJ's books. 
you have to check out this YouTube video. Unbelievable documentation about these Bigfoot creatures exists and is laid out in the video. Go to YouTube and search on Will Star and then watch the 15-minute video titled U.S. Forest Service Biologist Studies Several Types of Bigfoot. You'll be floored, I guarantee it. Also, watch the video at the same channel titled Scientific Proof of Bigfoot. Absolutely amazing stuff. All the best to both of you, and thanks for the great podcast. And Dave, thanks for the tip. I did go and look at this YouTube channel, and it's pretty cool. Um, I don't. Did you see it, Bill? Uh, I told him, and I haven't had a chance to go back. I tried to search it out. Uh, obviously, I found Will Star. I couldn't specifically find the episodes that he was talking about. Now, uh, to Dave's credit, he got back to me and sent me a new link. And as of the making of this podcast, I haven't been back in to look at it. All However, right. well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, go. Ahead, go. Okay, so what was really interesting to me was this Forest Service uh, biologist, uh, U.S. Forest Service biologist, gives like different species descriptions of everything from, you know, what we would call a swamp ape down in Florida to, uh, you know, a giant Sasquatch up in uh, northwest Canada and then even going over to the Yeti in Asia and uh, and different, you know, drawings, photographs of them kind of thing and what's different about them and why and where they originated and the theory, by the way, this person had that I picked up on was that, you know, a lot of times when you read about um, the origin, potential origin of Bigfoot in North America, it goes back to, uh, um, uh, Bill, what's the name of the giant ape in Asia? Giganto- found this. Gigantopithecus? Yeah, Gigantopithecus. Sorry, just wasn't there on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, no, it's, it's a strange um, but the, term. Yeah, but the theory is that that giant ape came across on the land bridge from Asia to North America. But this uh, scientist is saying that it went the other way around, you know, um, that that the apes were here and then went over the land bridge to Asia, to uh, Yeti, that they were here first. So it's pretty interesting. Definitely worth checking out. Um, and thanks, Dave, for giving us uh, tips on uh, information that's out there. Yeah, you know, when we look at what's what's sold to us as being fact uh, historically, uh, in my opinion, there's no proof that the uh, Gigantopithecus uh, came one way or the other. But we kind of accept what we're told by a, a couple of different talking heads as far as what happened. And in my opinion, they don't have... Uh, the evidence to prove what they're saying. And not that I need it. If it did, in fact, originate in North America uh, and then go the other way, fine and dandy, you know, but we weren't there. (laughs) Thankfully, we weren't there, like, to encounter the uh, short-nosed bear at 12 feet tall, ripping... Uh, human beings apart across North America. You know, thank God we don't have those things running around now. <laughs> Gigantopithecus. Could you imagine if you were some form of human 
at that point in time and having uh, a short-nosed bear at 12 or 14 feet tall coming into your hovel to eat you for dinner. I mean, I'd be like, thank God it wasn't a long-nosed bear. Maybe it's got less teeth. <laughs> no, they were they were nasty buggers, boy. And uh, who knows what a Gigantopithecus uh, had on its menu. If they were omnivores, uh, it could be you. you oh, know? yeah. But uh, I find all of, I find all of that stuff very interesting. And by the way, I've had numerous conversations with uh, DEC people, forestry service people, uh, who have uh, seen these creatures for themselves. So you don't have to uh, you don't have to sell anybody on the existence of uh, Sasquatch. Uh, the thing is, though, you know, these people got to shut their mouths or they'll lose their job. And that's that's yeah. the that's the straits that they're in when they have a sighting. It's like the old airline thing with the UFOs, Kev, right? You couldn't talk about it. You may not be behind the stick anymore. So No uh, doubt about it. Yeah. Yep. Unfortunately, that's the situation we're up against with a lot of these uh, departmental uh, people, they just, you know, you got 25 on the job and five to go. Uh, you don't want to get uh, axed uh, because you're interviewing with somebody publicly about, you know, Sasquatch and some department hiding the evidence, you know. No, no, don't need that. Anyways, yeah, it's a strange thing. All right. Well, we got another email here. The last one, Bill, from Brian. And Brian... His subject is more subtle government acknowledgement of Bigfoot. So this is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, I like the uh, email that you wrote in, Brian, but you only acknowledge my brother. So I do have a bone to pick with you, a bone <laughs> pile to pick with you there. Because <laughs> he writes, hey, WJ, and there's nothing after that. So Yeah, yeah. But he says to you, Bill, not me, Google (laughs) Lower Sewanee National Wildlife Refuge hunting regulations for 2022 and 2023. And this location is in Florida. He says there's a PDF of the hunting regulations with a map. Under specific hunt regulations, it says, Hogs. No size or bag limit for hogs. It also states there is no taking of swamp or skunk apes. Wow. And he says, why the need to mention that when there are no apes in Florida, or for that matter, North America? Yeah. Hello. And then he recovers a little bit in his letter because in the end he says, thanks for all you and KJ do. Oh, he redeemed himself. He did. He did. Uh Uh-huh. You still want to hit him uh, with a bone? No, not yet. No, he he redeemed himself. I I did have the bone up over my shoulder. (laughs) The bone club. (laughs) And uh, he says, and then he ends by saying, waiting for volume 10. And you you mentioned volume 10 is out there, Bill. Yeah. Yeah, He's asleep at the stick. But that's pretty wild, right? Like that that their uh, regulation says no taking of swamp or skunk apes. Yeah, and it's again, why have uh, you know, you don't just po- post something to be humorous. 
that's not the way town, local, or federal governmental agencies work. You don't just post no, it something. Wouldn't get through the approval process. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's there's nothing humorous about it. You know, when we look at the local DEC regs for fishing, uh, all of the species, freshwater and salt, are listed. Size limits, bag limits, season start dates, season end dates. It's a very meticulous thing that's set out. And you can't, they don't just put something in there, you know, like no Loch Ness monsters may be taken this season. (laughs) Need a special permit for catching Loch Ness monsters. Yeah, yeah, you know. So uh, I I get it. I get it. It's it's an acknowledgement. In case something happens, there are rules regarding it that departmental people have to follow. And more likely, probably because they get a lot of questions about it. Yeah, well, you you know, know, uh, it's very bizarre, really bizarre. But But that's it this week, Bill. Uh, Another good podcast. Folks, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast player. Or on YouTube, if you partake uh, in that way as we get started on YouTube. And, um, you know, good stuff. And, folks, you're probably listening to this around Easter. So have a very blessed and happy Easter as well. Yes. And by the way, Alex, what is a spontaneous human combustion? Uh, Good recovery. (laughs) And, folks... (laughs) If you should find yourself walking around in the timber hunting deer in Washington State, like Terry Wade, you better remember just one thing. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. <laughs>